Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm your host, Scott Gardner, and today on the show we have Chris Honeywell. Hello. Hey, how's it going, man? Good. You're you're hardly a stranger to me, but it's it's fun to have you on a, a back. To I'm new to the show. Yeah. yeah, I'm brand new to this show. Yeah, so we're gonna I've have... just been sort of an outsider looking in. Now I get to, I guess, show some of I. You know, this is a good way for me to show my comic what kind of comic what I have of comic chops, I should say, <laughs> because you know I have a very different collection than I think you and a lot of the other people that listen to our show do. So. You know, a lot of those conversations that get deep into Marvel and DC stuff, I'm lost. So being able to dip into my own collection, you know, I'm going to the well that I know. I'm I'm both looking forward to it and extremely nervous about it at the same time. So I think it I think it I should love make you for should an, be. Uh oh. It should make for an interesting episode. Well go ahead and, and hit me with what you got. Okay, so uh, this issue brings us back to September of 1995. It's uh, Chester Brown, Underwater, Chapter 4. Cover by Chester Brown, written by Chester Brown, art by Chester Brown, inked by Chester Brown. And uh, the original cover price on this was two ninety-five, which I, I, I know that's what I paid for it because I bought, you know, I was following this series. I'm a big fan of Chester Brown. Um, he's a Canadian. He lives in Toronto. And I, his first, I guess, claim to fame was uh, a comic called Yummy Fur, and they sort of took one of the stories out of it and made it into a book called Ed the Happy Clown that sort of made its way around like when I was in college. And I actually had a girlfriend who was friends with him, and at one point she gave me a, a whole bunch of Yummy Furs. And uh, he has a he's he always works in black and white, very sort of simple line drawings, but very nicely shaded. And this this underwater story, I was loving it. It actually this this run sort of just died about halfway, I guess, where it was going, and he just gave up on it to do a comic about um, an early founder of Canada. But this this book was about it was usually in three segments, and the first segment was the main segment, which was about these twin babies and you follow them from birth and i'm assuming you know up into up into life but it's told from their point of view so everybody in the book from this is issue 4 they're still talking gibberish everybody you see just sort of has gibberish talk going on all the adults and as the comics would go on as the babies would figure out more words would get filled in and you would start also picking up, you know, things just from the way the words were la- laid out. So you're sort of almost learning this weird alien language. And it's like people, but they're all sort of bald and weird looking. And uh, the, one of the babies' name is Kupafam, and the other <laughs> one is Jews. Yes. And Kupafam looks a little smarter. That Jews looks a little kind of dumb. And Kupafam starts talking earlier. And this one starts out with a visit to um, what you have to assume is Kupafan's mother's sister, so their their aunt, you know, at one point she's telling him, you know, I'm your aunt, and the baby's saying, Kupafan, yes, that's your name. Of course, that's not what they're saying. This is this is as she's taking Kupafan's, the aunt is taking Kupafan's little rain gear off, off her, you know, while she's sitting on the window. She says, okay, Kupafan, let's teach Fan Mish for two new you. And then Kupafan says, Kupafan! 
Kupafamen, she says, that's your where. That's you. So by this time, you're starting to really get a little bit of English in here. And, you know, the ants are talking, and uh, they sort of say, let's get the niece out here to uh, to take out take care of the kids while we talk in the kitchen and, and hang out. So the niece takes him in and sits him down and, and shows him a TV show, which is sort of a crime drama with a guy kicking a gun out of the hand and dialogue such as, Shadeth off, not Rala. Take you, Radarth, Bleacher, Didza. Ha, 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 ha. So finally they said, okay, let's uh, turn off the TV. And uh, Lafa is the name of the niece, and they tell Lafa to take him up to bed. So she sort of picks up the two babies. As whenever these babies go to sleep, it gets really weird and sort of dreamlike. And, you know, she carries him up to bed, and she's sort of walking up with them on the end of her arms like little puppets. And uh, she drops him off at the top of the stairs. And uh, Kupafam sort of walks down this weird hallway, and everything's sort of Salvador Dali-like. All the tables are at odd angles, and... There's this woman on on a bed, standing on a bed next to this weird, like, nipply, like, entrance into another dimension or something with a wet umbrella saying, Kupafam, are you okay? And Kupafam sort of looks at himself and says, yeah, I'm okay. And she actually, it could be a man, but it looks, well, it looks like it has breasts. So it could, it's probably a woman says, will you go in there and sort of is opening up this weird little organic hole in the wall and... Kupafan says, okay, and sort of crawls in down a long hole and comes out, and there's a woman with a wash pan, and she throws the water at Kupafam, and then Kupafam sees herself or himself, we don't really know Kupafam's gender, out like laying outside in the rain, just sort of alone. And that's the end of that story. Then the next story is called My Mom Was a Schizophrenic. And up to here, it's the true story of Chester Brown's mom, who's a schizophrenic, and basically made him and his little brother's life hell. But this one sort of is out of the telling the story of what his mom used to do, and it's a lot of frames of just a little picture of Chester Brown, drawing a Chester Brown talking, and he's just sort of talking about the nature of schizophrenia and how it's not a disease that anybody can really trace, you know, they can't find any physical traces of it, so it's really a psychological disease, and he has a lot, whenever he has a quote by, like, a doctor or a philosopher or something, he has a philosopher standing there saying it, so it's a lot of people in text, and he's basically arguing that schizophrenics would probably be in a better state if society accepted them more, basically is the 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 gist of that. And then the third part is called Matthew 1424 to 1431. And it was his adaption of the Bible. He was slowly working through the Bible. And this to me was the strongest part of this book. The pages in, in, in the, in the Kupafam story too, the, the, the actual pages are black. So the frames are on a black background. And often there's like th- only three or four frames on each page. And, this is just the story of Jesus walking, you know, it's Jesus walking on the water and his disciples are in the boat and, you know, they're they're looking at him going, hey, look, and they see Jesus walking on the waves and one of them says, it's a ghost, and Jesus yells over, don't be afraid, it's me. And, and Thomas comes up and goes, Master, can I walk on the water too? And Jesus says, come on. So Thomas gets out and 
walks across the water and and when he gets up to Jesus he looks down at his feet and falls into the water and Jesus grabs him and goes where's your faith you know why did you doubt and that's the end of it but why i like this was it is eerie looking my telling of the story just doesn't communicate how eerie lo- Jesus has this pointy <laughs> face and his disciples it's like it, it it's why i liked monty python like depictions of the past the people have, you know, are scrawny and scraggly and, and you know, look like they've been poor and diseased and, <laughs> you know, they look like lumpy, bumpy, grumpy people, you know, so they don't look so like... Terry Gilliam-esque? No, the, well, oh. I just, I, I thought Monty Python, even in their humor, they would bring layers of realism, like in Life of Brian. Oh, okay, I got you. Stuff like that, that that were, you know, they would make the past look as ugly and dirty and scroungy as it was, you know. They they would sort of, and that was more of an honest portrayal than, like, serious movies on those time periods. And this, you know, it doesn't draw Jesus as this sort of benevolent, soft-faced guy. He's looking, he's kind of balding on top and with a pointy face and a pointy beard, and he looks kind of angry and grumpy, you know. He's, he's got a kind of scowl on his face as he's walking on the wall. He has a scowl on his face in pretty much all of them, but it, it really, it, it um, with very few words and pictures, it really, like, captures the stories of the Bible, I think, more, in a more interesting way for me, at least, mm-hmm. you know. It, it puts them more in... It's, it's of course, through Chester Brown's view of it, but he's taking it, I think, as a more a realistic portrayal of parables. Right. So you have a parable, but you have it, and, you know, it's still cartoony, but, you know, it's, it's very dark. It's literally dark. It's black pages, and then there's a little white border for the frame, but the insides of the frame, and especially in this one, are mostly black, you know, the sea is black, the sky is black, and there's a few streaks in the sky for rain and highlights of the waves and stuff, but it's, it reminds me of those scratchboard drawings that people would do where you'd scratch a layer of black off. Hmm. And uh, all in all, a very strong issue of Underwater, as I thought all of them were, but apparently he had a lot of, got a lot of flack for this. A lot of people didn't like it. A lot of the reviewers didn't like it. A lot of his fans didn't like it. And he just gave up on it after a while. Much to my chagrin, I was loving it. Now, was this something he was publishing himself or is this through a publishing it's through house? Dra- drawn and quarterly. Drawn so it's quarterly. a, which is a pretty big, it's, it's sort of a prestigious of the, of the alternative stuff you know you have to have some chops to for drawn and quarterly to start doing stuff or somebody in drawn and quarterly has to really like you so it's you know they had and drawn and quarterly probably would have stuck by it you know until he got done doing it but i think he's a very reclusive so i don't think he takes criticism well (laughs) so i think he just gave up on it yeah he was just like well nobody likes it you know nobody cares what's going to happen to these kids and you know, everybody, uh, the big complaint was it's slow, you know, it's slow. There's not much happens in it. But, you know, you. It, I thought it was fascinating following kids, you know, from birth to cognizance, you know. And you ha- actually were follow, following along with them. You had to learn the language along with the kids, you know, through context. And that sounds kind of dry, but, you know, the way he did it was really neat. And the, 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 the art, 
I think is just beautiful. Well, it's certainly an original concept. I mean, I, I yeah. think it's a neat idea, and you know, I, I think that it would be interesting. You know, I haven't ever seen this, so it's hard to judge. You know, not knowing what the art looks like or whatever, but just the way you described it with like the the dolly esque hallway and stuff like that. I, I think that's a neat idea to try to do something that would be trying to interpret what we think the world must look like through the eyes of, of an infant or something. Yeah. That, that is an interesting experiment to try to tackle something like that. Yeah. But I, I don't know I... if I could get past the baby speech part, though. It, when you were talking about the TV commercial, it was reminding me of uh, if you ever played The Sims and everybody yes. that has their own little weird, almost baby n- noise kind of... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's what it reminded me of a lot was was something you'd hear in that yes, game. Yes, it is. Or it's like that that um, Far Side cartoon where the guy's talking to the jo- dog and it's blah 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 ginger blah right, blah blah, right. blah ginger. <laughs> right. I think my dog hears me that way. <laughs> so what do you got? Well, you got, I uh, I am I'm much more on the beaten path, I must say, than than yours. I'm right down the right down the middle, so to speak, on comics on this one. We're gonna go back to April 1999 for this one. I have the Hulk, Volume One, Number One. Now, this is uh, this would very quickly become the Incredible Hulk, Volume Three. But when it started out, it, it was trying to, I think, break away from the old standard, you know, what Hulk had been. Because I don't know how the how Volume 2 of the Hulk ended, but I have a feeling it just kind of petered out. And I'll, I'll touch more on that in a minute, because there's a story element in this that I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? But anyway, um, this was written by John Byrne, who, you know, you and I are both enjoying him right now on uh, his IDW stuff, you know, his Star yes, Trek Star stuff Trek. for IDW. Art on this by Ron Garney, who provides a you know a really nice wraparound cover for it. Inks by Dan Green, and the original cover price on this was a whopping two ninety nine, which you know I, I know I didn't pay that for it, but uh, I was just kind of surprised that uh you know that that in ninety nine you know that this was three bucks. But I don't know if that's just because it's a first issue or because it's kind of meaty or what the deal is, but. Anyway, um, this is a story entitled Holocaust in the Heartland. And it starts off with a simple, you know, peaceful looking farmhouse and this little girl, Emma. She's coloring in front of the TV in her house when there's suddenly there's, uh, you know, this tornado siren goes off and it totally freaks her out. She's just a little kid and she goes running out to see what, you know, all the noise is about when her daddy, who's a lawman, comes running in and he grabs her and he's trying to flee the house as quick as he can when we turn the page and there's a beautiful two-page splash of this 18-wheeler gas truck literally coming flying out of the sky and smashing into their house. I mean, it's just a gorgeous piece of art. And the father, you know, he's carrying the girl and, and running out of the, the out of the house into the yard and he's narrowly missed as the truck comes crashing to the ground all around them. And he's run to the storm cellar, and he's trying to put the girl in, but it's jammed, and he needs both his hands to do it. So he puts her down to try to open the thing, and, of course, she immediately runs off on him, and she's calling for Bruce. You know, where's Bruce? And she's trying to find this Bruce character who, you know, we know who that is. And, uh, you know, the father, he's horrified, and he goes running after her to try to catch her, and, you know, it's too late. 
because she apparently dies when the gas truck, the fumes and, and the, the fuel leaking out catches fire and it, there's this gigantic explosion. And that's the opener to the book. And then we cut to, you know, this really nice, you know, late at night, starry sky, you know, middle of nowhere scene of this bus traveling through all these small towns of middle America. And there we see Banner, you know, Robert Bruce Banner, who's, you know, he's secretly the Hulk and he's on board this bus. And the bus finally makes a stop in this small little Main Street type of town of Faulkner, where Banner is kind of lured off the bus by the quiet serenity of the town. And he's just, he's just kind of wandering like on the old TV show at this point. But, you know, he, he just, he likes the apparent peacefulness of this town. So he gets off and uh, he comes across this old lady sitting on her porch and she's knitting or something and she has rooms for rent. So, you know, he strikes a deal with her that, you know, he doesn't have any money to offer, but, you know, if she'll give him a room for the night, you know, he'll try to find work the very next day and everything. And, you know, she, she says that he really looks like he needs a break. So she takes him in and, you know, he, he immediately goes upstairs and crashes dead asleep where he has these horrible yet beautifully illustrated nightmares of the Hulk on this just ferocious rampage. And he wakes the next morning and, you know, he splashes some water on his face and he gets dressed and he comes downstairs and he finds that half of the house is just gone and that his nightmares weren't just merely dreams, that the Hulk really did go on this wicked tear last night and the town has just been utterly devastated because of him. So he's feeling horrible at this point. And, you know, this old lady's home is destroyed and all these other people are homeless and the town's just a shambles. So, you know, of course, they don't know who he is. So he volunteers. He just kind of joins the local men as they start to clean up and, and try to recover from all this. And he draws the attention of the local sheriff who, you know, we can see is the father from the beginning of the story. And at the end of the workday, you know, he's he's impressed by Banner, you know, the fact that he basically did the work of 10 guys and everything, and and he offers Banner a place to sleep. And Banner takes him up on it and goes home with him where he meets his little girl, Emma, and Emma's babysitter who, you know, treats them all to a, a nice home-cooked meal. And then the sheriff and, and Banner, you know, they have kind of a – a male bonding time and, and they get to know each other. And it seems like they're well on their way to becoming fast friends. The next morning though, and, and this was the only part of the story I had a problem with was there's a real, it seemed like a real leap to me. Logic wise, the sheriff goes to work and leaves banner, you know, who he just met the day before, you know, there to watch his little girl while he goes to work. Now, yeah. You know, that's forgive. lazy writing because yeah. the writer knows that banners can be trusted, but you know he, the guy's a sheriff too. So right. sheriffs have the sheriff might have a good feeling about Banner and think that he's a really nice guy, but he also knows that there well, could mean, be a secret to there because there is actually oh, there yeah, is a yeah. danger there. <laughs> there is big time. But you know, I mean, Banner. You know, there's no beating around the bush. Banner is a scrawny, creepy-looking kind of guy. You know, he's he's bespectacled and he's kind of a weirdo. You know, because he's he's a geek and he's kind of socially inept. You know, plus he's been on the run for years. You know, and he's got this horrible secret of what's inside of him. He, I mean, he could very easily, for all this sheriff knows, be a child molester or a serial serial killer or something. I mean, for Christ's sakes, he arrived by bus in the middle of the night the night before. You know. 
This guy. Hey, I've, knows- ridden, I've ridden the bus. I know what you know. What kind of creep gets oh, off yeah. the bus? <laughs> but anyway, you know, I mean, it, it's a nitpick, but I thought it was a significant nitpick in this case. But anyway, you know, he he leaves Banner there with the girl. He goes to work. You know, and I just, I don't know. I I just really thought that this guy must be one shitty father. You know, to, to trust this guy yeah. he just met to watch her. But anyway. You know, we, we, there's a scene where Banner, we see him walking out the back door of the house into the backyard, you know, where the swing set and the laundry's on the line and everything. And he's just kind of thinking, you know, you know, sweet kid, but, you know, she's talking my ear off. I need a little break kind of thing. And he wanders outside and he's, you know, kind of pondering his situation and having a little internal monologue when he suddenly, he seems to suffer some kind of like seizure or something and he, he just falls down. And we cut to the sheriff's office where all these people have arrived from FEMA. They actually arrived the day before, and they're there, and they've established like a little FEMA command center. And for whatever reason, they actually have a, a, a radar there. Maybe they're trying to track the Hulk, you know, in case he comes back or something. But anyway, they uh, they track this object on radar, and they're they're seeing it, and they're trying to figure out what's going on with it when the sheriff looks at it and he realizes exactly what it is is that it's headed straight for his house so then we cut back to the present and we pick up with the explosion of the tanker truck from the beginning of the story and we see that the little girl was actually just hit by the shock wave of the blast and for the moment she's okay but she's cut off from her father he can't reach her there's this like wall of flame on either side of them so while they both try to seek a way around the flames to get to each other, she heads towards the seeming safety of their barn when we see this concussion wave blast the barn apart and it all collapses and everything. And the stunned little girl, you know, she's trying to pick herself back up and she stands up and she finds herself face to face with this just absolutely enormous, bulky, over-muscled, pissed off scary looking hulk it, it's one yeah. of the best hulk illustrations i'd seen in a long time and it was great and that's where that story ended and there was actually even a, a little bonus there's an eight page backup story that was written penciled inked and lettered by uh burn himself um narrated by nick fury of shield wow called uh everything you ever wanted to know about the hulk but were afraid to ask and it, it's a simple little thing. It's just, a, it's basically, it's an origin recap of the Hulk, and it's a nice little get you up to speed piece. But I thought it was really interesting because it turns out that the that the people that Fury is addressing in this story, you know, we see at the very end of the story, are actually John Byrne and Ron Garney themselves. And, you know, so it was one of those little, you know, injecting the creators into the book kind of thing, which normally uh-huh. those kind of things are, come off kind of corny, and it, it does in this case too. But it's it's still kind of cool. Uh, Fury has actually recruited these guys to illustrate a comic about the Hulk as kind of a PR move to try to save Banner because, and this was the only part of the issue I didn't get was it shows a shot of Banner and he's sitting in a, a jail cell and it's and uh, Fury says that he's actually on death row for the for the he's uh, responsible for the deaths of 368 people and that's kind of where it leaves out and I was like well I didn't get any of that from the initial story so I'm wondering is this picking up from something you know some story that right. happened 
at the end of the last series or some what? sort of crossover event thing yeah. that was going on. Yeah, so as I a, didn't as a publicity to the this number one or something. Yeah, Could yeah, be. I almost kind of wondered: does is that where this story's going? Is that you know the Hulk's really going to go on a tear? And kill people in the next, you know, in in later issues, or is this a, a plot thread that was left hanging from the last series? It, right. it doesn't give any editor's notes or anything, and, and there wasn't anything at the back. You know, sometimes these brand new issues will will you know give you a little thing about you know yeah, coming up in the date. Yeah, and it didn't give anything, so that was the only thing I I was confused by. But uh, I really enjoyed this. You know the. The burn thing at the back was it was it was okay it was kind of interesting this is still I hate to say it, it's this is still the the substandard burn that that we had gotten used to in the past few years up until you know he he seemed to be hitting his stride again with this new stuff he's putting out for IDW so that that was kind of like eh it was interesting but the main story with uh, you know especially with Ron Garney's art I was just really blown away by it. I thought it was really beautiful cuz uh you know, he, he does really nice illustrations of just this little slice of life of this little middle America town. It, it's uh-huh. just so nicely illustrated. But then he can, he can flip completely the other way and he's drawing, you know. Primal rage. Yeah. And wow. I mean, his Hulk Mass is destruction. Just, yeah. It, it's, it's beautiful. There's even a great little panel where, uh, where Banner's pitching in and helping clean up the town. And there's a little panel at the bottom. Of a page that's all of the men in silhouette, like forming like a chain where they're passing debris along a line right. or something. But the way it, it's it's backlit with the sun behind them and they're on kind of a ridge and they're all in silhouette looks like it's right out of that digging scene from Raiders of the Lost. Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's great. It, it's really nice. I don't know if it was an intentional thing or not, but it, it sure did remind me of that. Just a fan. I mean, this is the kind of first issue I like. It comes right out of the shoot with a nice little backstory, and then bam, hits you with a lot of action, leaves you with a great cliffhanger. I thought it was a, a really good uh, first issue. It's just, it's the kind of, it's the way I like to see the Hulk written. You know, Banner on the run, uh-huh. running from town to town, and then the Hulk comes out and just messes everything up for it. <laughs> I thought it was cool. Classic, the way it's meant to be. Absolutely. So we go from, went from two extremes, from little babies to the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> it was a weird mix, that's for sure. Special thanks to Chris Honeywell for joining me on this episode. Be sure to check out the show Chris co-hosts with this other fucking clown who never shuts his yap at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me right back here next week when who knows what mystery guest host will be popping by. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, and criticisms for the show via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of the comicforums.com. We are now accepting requests for guest host spots on the show, so if you'd like to join me in an episode, let me know. Also, please be sure to check out the home website for Back to the Bins at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you can find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcast.com. 
take a moment to drop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and I'll see you next week.